0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World Podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine and apologies for the delay in the uh, in the episode. Um, I did get caught up with uh, work over the weekend and, it, and it's delayed me from publishing this week's episode. Um, the next proper episode on the schedule is about the Delhi Sultanate, so that's one to look forward to. However, this week we're going to have a magazine episode, we're going to revisit... Uh, History of the World podcast episodes of years gone by. So what we normally do is look at what was being published uh, on this date in previous years during the podcast's um, journey, let's say. So our first visit of the week will be to an episode from five years ago. Now, five years ago, we were in the thick of Volume 1 and we were discussing the evolution of the human being. And one of the things that we discussed was something called mitochondrial Eve, which is the female uh, common ancestor for all of us, for everyone on this planet. Um, Now, scientists have had to speculate as to who mitochondrial Eve was, where she lived and how long ago she lived. But we also um, looked at the phenomenon of pedigree collapse. So this is what we look at when discovering why, um, when we've got two parents, four grandparents, uh, eight great-grandparents, why there wasn't millions and millions more people uh, on the planet uh, in years gone by. It's because of something called pedigree collapse. And uh, we investigated that five years ago today. So let's go back and have a listen. On the subject of maternity, we can already now consider our own individual ancestral lineages. There are 7.6 billion individual Homo sapiens alive on the planet today. And every last one of us can trace our parentage back to the same point, which on the face of it makes sense. However, determining when our common ancestors existed can seem like an impossible task. Some might think that we may have all descended from a man and a woman who lived in ancient Greece or Egypt, while others may guess that we descend from a pair of apes who lived six million years ago. Who could tell? The answer... ...lies within our DNA, or our dioxyribonucleic acid to give it its full name. Our DNA is the stuff within us that contains the code for our development. It's a bit like the computer program that is used to help us grow correctly. So our DNA will determine things like our eye colour, and how good we might be at doing crossword puzzles just as an abstract example. Every single cell in our body will contain our DNA and therefore our own individual code. DNA can be useful in a number of different areas. As DNA is somewhat passed down to us from our parents with minimal variation, we can compare a mother's DNA to her daughter's DNA and recognise the similarities well enough to be able to confidently recognise the relationship. Should you find a lock of hair at a crime scene, you can read the DNA of the hair to determine exactly who it belongs to and then potentially link them to the crime. Not only can we extract DNA codes from living individuals, but we can also extract it from our deceased ancestors. When we do this, we can start to plot maps of similarities over land and time. We call this our phylogenetic tree. The phylogenetic tree is made up of haplogroups. Now, if this sounds like it's getting extremely technical, then let me leap forward a little bit into the material of our future podcasts. In our next podcast, we will be exploring Homo sapiens' expansion and how we colonise the world. Our belief is that a particular haplogroup of Homo sapiens are the ones who migrated out of Africa where we first evolved. This haplogroup is called L3 and is thought to have originated in East Africa roughly 95,000 years ago and is thought to have partially migrated out of Africa sometime after 74,000 years ago and is believed to be the origin of all humans whose ancestry is from anywhere, not in Africa. We can determine all of this information purely from DNA study. It is for that reason that we can also take a guess as to when the last common direct mother of each and every one of us was alive. So if I refer to me and you listening right now to this podcast, whoever we both are, we can trace back through our respective mothers and their respective mothers, and their respective mothers, and so on, and our matrilineal lines will converge to the same woman, no further back than a particular woman who once lived, regardless of who we both are. This woman is called mitochondrial Eve, and through DNA analysis we can determine that she may have been alive around 200,000 years ago. This is hotly debated though, with some claiming that she is a lot older or a lot more recent. So if mitochondrial Eve is the direct ancestor to us all, through the female line only, then her male equivalent, called Y-chromosomal Adam, the patrilineal father to us all, would surely have been alive at the same time. Well, that is an incorrect assumption. There is actually no valid reason why he needs to be contemporary to mitochondrial Eve, as it really is quite chancy that any family line remains unbroken. The other important aspect is something that we refer to as pedigree collapse. To explain pedigree collapse, we firstly need to understand the numbers when it comes to working out our ancestry. Each of us has two parents. And because each of our parents had to have two parents, that means that we all have four grandparents. It just has to be the case for us all. Subsequently, we have eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and 32 great-great-great-grandparents. So that should be quite straightforward and quite easy to understand. Let's look at the future king of the United Kingdom, Charles, Prince of Wales. He has two parents, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. If we continue back, then we should assume by what we have already stated that Charles will have four grandparents, eight great-grandparents 16 great-great-grandparents and 32 great-great-great-grandparents one of charles's 16 great-great-great-grandmothers is queen victoria as queen victoria is the great-great-grandmother of charles's mother queen elizabeth ii are you still with me i hope so the problem is that charles's father Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, also has Queen Victoria as his great-great-grandmother. Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, are actually third cousins. And this means that two of Charles's 16 great-great-great-grandmothers are Queen Victoria. So really, Charles has to say that he only has 15 great 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 grandmothers because although Charles is descended from Victoria through two bloodlines she was only ever one person. This makes sense because if you keep doubling the number of ancestors for each generation you move back in time with on your family tree you will soon actually begin to outnumber the contemporary population of the world. So you have to keep finding that you descend from the same person through multiple bloodlines. And this is exactly what pedigree collapse is. So why chromosomal Adam very likely never met mitochondrial Eve because they were very likely not even alive at the same time. Estimates for Y-chromosomal Adam's existence was possibly 270,000 years ago, but honestly, some other expert suggestions are not even close to that, so the experts can't even agree. What we do know is that they must have both existed. We just can't be sure when. Well, quite interesting stuff there. Also, just goes to show you how things change in five years, doesn't it? I mean, the world's population, no longer 7.6 billion. Uh, We estimate that it's now over 8 billion. So it's changed that dramatically since the podcast episode from five years ago. Also, um, Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, is now King Charles III of England because uh, his parents, who were both alive at the time of recording that podcast, are now no longer with us. So, um, yeah, how things change in five years. quite interesting to listen back and think about those things as well. Moving on, um, we now go to four years ago, what we were talking about, and during the episode from four years ago, it was volume two, so we were looking at the ancient world, and we were looking at the very beginnings of history in China. Now, we have good evidence of uh, of the Shang dynasty actually existing in China. Um, But preceding that, there was another dynasty who we're not actually sure whether they existed or not. So let's let's go back and and listen to that sort of last grey area of Chinese history. The Shang Dynasty of China emerged around the 16th century BCE while the Longshan culture had declined at the beginning of the 2nd millennium BCE. So let us discuss what happened in the middle. According to traditional Chinese history, there was a dynasty which preceded the Shang dynasty, and its name was the Xia dynasty. Apparently, during the 3rd millennium BCE, an emperor emerged from the tribes of prehistoric China and his name was Huang Ti, also known as the Yellow Emperor. The Yellow Emperor would establish a government of China and was succeeded by his grandson, Shuang Tzu. Shuang Tzu's rule was contemporary with the emergence of the Xia tribe and the Xia tribe would rise to be the supreme tribe over the tribe of Chio, called the Nine Lee tribe. Different legends and histories contain slightly different stories, but I am going to allow the American writer Emily Mark's article on the ancient history encyclopedia lead my narrative here. She mentions that there was a Xia dynasty emperor called Yao and that he requested that a man called Guan work to control the floods of the Yellow River in order to prevent lands being destroyed. However, Guan was not successful and many people remained homeless as a consequence. Shun was the new emperor after Yao and he asked... Gwyn's own son who was called Yu to try to succeed at controlling the floodwaters where his father had failed. Yu had learned a lot from the mistakes of his father and was able to succeed in controlling the floodwaters. Such was the adulation that Yu had received by saving the population that Emperor Shun would announce Yu as his successor and Yu would come to be known as Yu the Great, and in some traditions is known as the first great emperor of the Xia dynasty. The late emperors of the Xia dynasty are not spoken of in great terms. The last ruler of the Xia dynasty was Xia, and he was overthrown by Tang. Tang was the first king of the Shang dynasty, which is the first dynasty of China for which we have firm archaeological evidence of its existence. So if we don't have any archaeological evidence of the Xia dynasty, what do we have? So we established that the Longshan culture went into a decline in around 1900 BCE. A site was discovered at a place called Arlito, which provides archaeological evidence from the period between the Longshan culture and the Shang Dynasty. Arlito shows signs of advanced bronze technology with the excavation of a bronze workshop. There is also evidence of palaces which point towards the emergence of a more modern culture with an elite class of rulers. Archaeologists have now called this the type site of the Arlito culture, which is upriver near the Yellow River. Archaeologists have found evidence of very important palace buildings connected by constructed avenues. However, the most notable discovery is of burial sites and considerable grave goods. We are not surprised to find bronze and jade artefacts among these, but they are also joined by some impressive pottery and items made from seashells, turquoise and cinnabar which is a scarlet-coloured mineral with all of this impressive-looking building work and impressive artefacts we should explore whether the archaeological site of Arlito could be the centre of the mysterious Xi'a dynasty archaeologists are convinced that Arlito is a capital city due to the importance of the discoveries it is undoubtedly the home of a very elite class of people who were highly revered within their society. So it is very possible that this could be the centre of a highly influential dynasty. The problem is that nobody can categorically say whether it is exactly the Si'at dynasty or not, but it does look like the Arlito culture is the likeliest candidate and that it is a real possibility. This is a very concentrated view of Neolithic China. There are many sites of many different ages in Chinese lands. Similar trends in the progress of China can be recognised when compared to other cultures of the Near East. We know that the Chinese appear to be well ahead of other global cultures when it comes to pottery. We do see similar trends in the emergence of agriculture With the domestication of animals and crops although the types of animal and crops were specific to the region metallurgy emerged as china entered the bronze age consistent with the other cultures that we have already explored we also saw the emergence of a writing system that can be directly related to the modern system of chinese writing essentially Cultures coalesced and prospered around the upper and lower Yellow and Yangtze rivers. Other societies emerged for different periods on the coastal lands and the island of Taiwan. It would be around the year 1750 BCE that the first major dynasty for which we have substantial evidence of would emerge in northern and eastern China. They are the Shang Dynasty, centred around the Yellow River, but also influential on the lands around the Yangtze River. So there we go, that was a dip back into the history of China, and uh, we'll be talking about plenty more Chinese history over the coming weeks and months as we explore the Far East during medieval periods. Now, our final dip back into history of this week of this particular magazine episode will take us to a a great battle in the history of the world, a, a quite a pivotal battle, and uh, one of those ones in which we lost one of the great uh, statesmen of the Roman Republic, and it's the Battle of Carrhae, and uh, it pitted the uh the uh, the Romans against the Parthian Empire, who were the representatives of Persia at the time in this age old battle between the Romans and the persians and uh this was quite an important battle and a quite- uh, quite a consequential battle for the Roman Republic. When Crassus arrived in the Near East he would set about trying to secure political alliances in the area while the Parthian king the II braced himself for a Roman offensive. Crassus' invasion of Parthia is thought by some historians to be an invasion of vanity possibly to rival the accomplishments of his triumvirate comrade Pompey who Crassus may felt was unfairly given more praise than himself for his military achievements and maybe having half an eye on Caesar's achievements in Gaul and feeling as if he needed to keep up with his contemporaries to secure his legacy. However, it may just have been that Crassus was simply attracted by the opportunity to secure more land and wealth for the growing imperial reach of the Roman Republic and believed that the Parthians were possibly becoming too powerful and needed to be curbed. Back in the 60s BCE, Pompey had taken up the cause against the Pontics and the Armenians during the Third Mithridatic War, and brought Pontus and Armenia under Roman influence, as we mentioned earlier. The Armenian king was Tigranus II, and known as Tigranus the Great, he would remain an official ally of Rome. The rump of the Seleucid Empire was now Roman Syria. As for Parthia, the king going into the 50s BCE was Phraates III, who was overthrown by his sons. One of them became Mithridates IV of Parthia and the other, Erodes II, decided that he also wanted to be the king and sought the help of Serena to achieve this. This would push Mithridates into an alliance with the Romans, making Erodes and Serena natural enemies of the Romans. Ultimately, Erodes would defeat his brother Mithridates and become the Parthian king, and this is how the Romans and Crassus could justify the cause for the battle. Crassus would be joined by his son, Publius Licinius Crassus, who had proved to be an extremely capable young commander under Julius Caesar during his campaigns in Gaul earlier in the decade. Publius took a concession of a thousand Gallic horsemen into Asia to aid with the upcoming conflict. Publius would have also been keen to cement his own reputation and legacy as a great Roman statesman and military commander in his own right. Crassus was in a strong position thanks to the allies that he had in the region who would have had reservations about the expanding Parthian Empire as much as they potentially could have about the Romans. King the II would have been aware of the dangers and would have actively moved to prevent communication between Crassus and the local kingdom leaders such as King the II of Armenia by intimidating the Armenian king. Crassus would have been eyeing a conquest of the Parthian city of Seleucia and his armed forces would have numbered around 40,000 legionary infantry with 4,000 light infantry and around 4,000 cavalry. The Parthian commander Serena wouldn't have had anything like that amount of manpower at his disposal with just 10,000 horsemen trying to prevent the Roman advance down the Euphrates River to the main Parthian cities in the south. However, if we take a closer look the 10,000 horsemen of Serena's Parthian army, then we can see it was a force that would have been quite an unusual opponent for the Romans, even if the Parthians were highly outnumbered. The Parthians were still very experienced and successful campaigners, having fought their way into the lands of the Seleucid Empire, taking it over completely. Their horsemen were armed with impressive composite bows made from wood and sinew and the horsemen would have been skilled horsemen capable of firing arrows at short range at their opponents with it being speculated that the Parthian arrows could pierce particular types of body armour. Around a thousand of the Parthian horsemen would have been cataphracts. These cataphracts were the especially heavily armoured cavalry. No infantry was being used. Crassus had already crossed the Euphrates River into the Parthian territory of Osroini in 54 BCE, the year before the battle. During this time, King Erodes II of Parthia had been busy dealing with the civil war with his older brother Mithridates IV, and attempting to isolate the Armenian king Artavastes II. Crassus had defeated some local chiefs, setting the scene for his advance the following year. In 53 BCE, the II would have been very likely aware of what he was up against, and when Crassus and his son advanced again, Erodis' trusted military commander Serena needed to have a plan if he was to stand any chance of victory in his vastly outnumbered state. The Battle of Cary The Parthians tried two different tactical approaches. Firstly, they would pay a local Arab to befriend the Romans with false local information about which course to take on their way down the Euphrates River towards the city of Seleucia. The local man would have actually led the Romans to Serena's chosen battle location to the east of the city of Cary. Secondly, Serena was careful to dress the cataphracts in such a way that their heavy armour was disguised under cloth, so that the Romans would underestimate their resilience. The journey across these arid lands wouldn't have been much fun for the Romans, who may have been dehydrated in the desert sun. As the Romans approached, Serena would have sent his disguised cataphracts towards the Romans and Crassus would have unlikely seen any kind of war tactic like it. So Crassus would have to think quickly about how his troops should form in order to defend themselves against the Parthian cataphract advance. The traditional Roman formation would have been to have a wide front line of infantry flanked with cavalry to prevent the legions from being encircled. But with there only being a small number of Parthian cavalry to deal with, and seemingly dressed with little armour, Crassus chose to form a large rectangular box containing the entire Roman army, so it could defend all sides from this cavalry-only attack. Serena sounded the battle command, and amidst loud Parthian drumming, the Parthians erupted into a full-scale advance of its entire cavalry army. The cataphracts would cast away their cloths now to demonstrate to the Romans that they were indeed armoured and the Romans would close their shields into a tight defensive wall in an attempt to absorb the first wave of attack from the Parthian bow and arrows. Crassus would have taken the view that with his vastly superior numbers that all he would need to be able to do is weather the Parthian barrage of arrows until such a time that the arrows would run out and the Parthians would become relatively defenceless, meaning that the Romans' 40,000 plus army could either pick off the Parthian horsemen or send them fleeing from the battlefield. It became apparent though that the Parthian onslaught was much more effective than Crassus may have imagined, with the effectiveness of the Parthian arrows being notable, with reports of arrows actually piercing Roman armour. Crassus would be aware of this and felt compelled to act. He sent the Roman light cavalry out from the Roman box in order to counterbalance the Parthians. However, the Parthians soon sent the cavalry back into the Roman box and the arrows continued to hail down on the Romans, picking off more and more men. However, Crassus would have still felt confident. Even with the Parthian arrows being effective, they would surely be running out of arrows soon and the tide would turn in favour of the huge numbers of Romans. However, what Crassus would not be aware of is the fact that Serena had maybe as many as a thousand camels waiting on the outskirts of the battlefield. And these camels were highly stocked up with arrows. And the arrows were the one thing that was keeping the Roman army besieged in the middle of the battlefield. Much to Crassus' dismay, the Parthians were not going to run out of arrows. Now, Crassus had to do something dramatic to avoid being hemmed in by the shower of arrows, and so he would command his son's unit to advance towards the Parthians so Publius would personally lead a charge away from the Roman box and towards the Parthians. The Parthians retreated away from Publius who would keep up the chase. However, the Parthians were actually thinking on their feet and when Publius's forces had become isolated from the group, the Parthian horsemen moved quickly to encircle Publius's breakaway unit and attack them with arrows. Publius realized that he was now out of control of his destiny and ordered his shield-bearer to kill him and spare him the disaster of being captured and his breakaway Roman force was destroyed. Those Parthian cavalry who had engaged with Publius's forces took Publius's severed head and stuck it to a lance, holding it aloft and approaching the Roman box so that all of the Romans and Publius's father could see what had happened. Crassus was powerless to prevent the absolutely relentless rain of arrows on his forces, who were surrounded by fast-moving, highly skilled, mounted bowmen. By nightfall, it could have been the case that at least half of the entire Roman forces had been killed. Those Romans who survived moved away from the battlefield to the relative safety of the city of Carry, While those too injured to move had one uncomfortable last night alive stranded on the battlefield before being unceremoniously finished off in the morning. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast magazine in which we took a look back over three periods of history from five, four and three years ago in the podcast's own history and we discussed mitochondrial eve, we discussed uh, the, the, the preceding dynasties of China to the Shang dynasty and we also discussed Marcus Licinius Crassus's demise at the Battle of Cary against the Parthians. Um, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then please visit our website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and you will qualify for gifts. And rewards, all of which are outlined on the website. If you want to access bonus material and want to listen to the podcast ad free, then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just click on the link in the podcast description. And if you would like to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Please let me know what you thought of this week's episode. Well, we're going to wrap up quickly this week. That's it for this week. The next episode, hopefully, will be on the Delhi Sultanate. That's the aim. So that will be very interesting, quite a uh, quite a fascinating um, uh, period of, of Indian history. So looking forward to that one. So thanks for listening, and until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Haslow. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at Mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.